if we have a Supreme Court who can basically dismantle the Affordable Care Act, and certainly there's a desire for that, you know, I, I really, really wonder and worry about people with pre-existing conditions, how they're going to get affordable access to, to coverage. I wonder how we're ever going to reduce the number of uninsured who over time costs more to society than anything else because if they if people who are uninsured show up in the emergency room and and our safety net hospitals are taking care of these people eventually it's society that pays for you know very very expensive acute care versus then preventive care and we see the uninsured rate going up You're listening to Rock the Boat, a purpose-driven podcast highlighting Asians who challenge the status quo. Our mission is to elevate the voices of Asians, showcase the diverse careers of Asians around the world, and discuss important topics affecting our community, such as mental health and civic engagement. I'm your host, Lucia Liu. Hey, listeners. Happy holidays. This is going to be the second to the last episode of Rock the Boat for season five. I hope that this short but impactful season of guests have helped you think differently about our government and about how to participate and contribute civically. It's been an eye-opening experience for me personally, learning from so many people who are passionate about changing things for the better. As Asian Americans, we are encouraged to become doctors and lawyers because they're stable and clear career paths. However, it is encouraging to see that many of us who do choose stable career paths also leverage it to create positive change. I think about Dr. Lena Wen and the former human rights lawyer, Kazim Rashid. While today's guest shares a similar path with other former guests on the podcast, his name is Thomas Sang. He's a doctor, a former White House staffer, and the CEO and co-founder of a technology health startup called Valera Health. Valera Health might ring a bell for you if you listen to Dr. David Moe's episode on mental health for the Asian American community. I interviewed Dr. David Moe back in season three when you may have heard him talk a bit about Valera Health. It's a technology firm that he and Thomas founded. David first introduced me to Thomas when he heard that I was airing a season for Rock the Boat featuring Asian Americans in politics. Dr. Thomas Sang actually helps write and execute the Affordable Care Act. For those of you who don't know what the Affordable Care Act, it's a piece of legislation that was passed during the Obama administration to ensure that everyone in the United States was covered under some form of health insurance. Prior to the Affordable Care Act and the availability of a health marketplace, an individual could only get access to affordable health insurance through their employer. This meant that those who were unemployed or underemployed would have to either pay the full amount of their medical bills, or they have to purchase their own health insurance plans, which can be several hundred dollars a month. I wanted to learn a bit more about how Thomas's personal experiences helped him craft the Affordable Care Act. In addition, we also talk about how he was able to transition from a practicing doctor to becoming a White House staffer and now a technology founder. Here's Thomas. 
this is Tom Tsang, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Blair Health, and I'm super excited to be on this. So, Thomas, I always like to begin our podcast with asking our guests about what they were like when they were young. So, what was little Thomas like, and where did you grow up? I honestly had a very typical first-generation immigrant Brooklyn kid childhood. We were kind of the part of the 70s immigration wave from Hong mm-hmm. Kong. Mm-hmm. And we landed in Chinatown. And at that time in the mid-70s, the part of Brooklyn that we lived in was around Sunset Park, Slack mm-hmm. Bay Ridge. And at that time in the 70s, it wasn't a Chinatown. And how old were you when you immigrated to the States? Uh, I was five. And this is around 1974. There were eight of us crammed into a three-bedroom apartment. My dad worked at a restaurant in Southern Jersey. That's a big family. That is a huge family and really a lot of mouths to feed on someone at that time who was probably earning around 20000 or 18000 a year. And that's why my oldest sister and oldest brother needed to go to work to help out with family finances. And on the health issue, like, I remember we sometimes did not seek medical treatment because we just didn't have the money. Mm. And so we didn't have health insurance. I didn't even know what health insurance was until I was 18. And I think there are plenty of times where we you know, had foregone medical care because we just didn't have the money to pay for health care. When Thomas was a senior in high school, he entered a program called Project Ahead, hosted by the Charles B. Wang Community Center in Chinatown. I think I heard about it from a fellow high school student friend. The program was designed to take in inner city kids and introduce them to the fields of medicine as a career. I highly, highly recommend it to any of your listeners who are either in the New York area, New York City, metropolitan area, who are interested in a medical background. Project Ahead helped open the path for Thomas's medical career. At Charles B. Wang, Thomas met mentors and advisors who helped him on his career journey. Thomas eventually received a degree in medicine at the Sophie Davis School of Medicine, which was sponsored by the City University of New York. It was one of these programs where it's combined medical school and college all into seven years. Wow. And it was automatic admission to med school where I didn't have to take the MCATs and apply to med school. But it also, the first five years, I got a scholarship in in college. The first five years were essentially free to me. So it really, but for all of that, you have to commit that you would work in an inner city under understaff and community that was short on physicians. So I ended up working in Chinatown as part of a commitment to that education that I promised New York State, because New York State paid for my education. After getting his degree, Thomas went back to Charles B. Wang as a full-time employee. So as you're working at Charles B. Wang Community Center, what sort of things were you encountering in relation to the Asian population there? Like what public health issues did you start to see were really impacting that community? Yeah, I, I think we 
we always need to be mindful and conscious that Asian Americans are such a heterogeneous group of people and mm -hmm. that we're being oftentimes being lumped as just one group that's very homogenous. And even amongst your listeners who may be Asian, we have to remember that a large portion of Asian Americans actually live in at the poverty level or below poverty level. Mm -hmm. Especially not, in New York. Yeah. 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 And not everyone is a part of that model minority stereotype who is like earning the top five, you know, 5% of earners in the country. And, and so what opened up my eyes was like, there's a huge segment of the population who are uninsured and underinsured. Kind of like you were when yeah, exactly. you were young. Exactly. Yeah. And many of them have nowhere to go for medical services as simple as blood pressure or high cholesterol or depression or anxiety or trauma. Many of them have PTSD. Charles Wang doesn't turn patients away. The clinic accepted everyone regardless of their ability to pay. They saw some of the sickest people. It sounds like there was a lack of preventative care in the community. People just, because of, like you said, social economic status and the fact that they don't have insurance, they ended up in the community center when they were really sick. Yeah, that's how the whole issue of the... Like you don't qualify for Medicaid because you make a little bit too much over the Medicaid requirement. And then there's also the issue of you don't qualify for Medicaid because you haven't been here for five years. So there's these uh, immigration issues, right? So there, mm -hmm. Medicaid has, and it varies state to state. There are states that are extremely rigorous and stringent. And then there are states that are a little bit more liberal about their Medicaid eligibility. And and now we know that, you know, there are certain states that are, have a work requirement also. So for the most part, though, what I saw was that there's this whole segment that really don't qualify for Medicaid, but they're hardworking people earning a living. Mm -hmm. And there's no access because we don't have that kind of like buffer for these lower middle class or what I call upper poverty level people who just are slightly above the Medicaid rate, but they're still working. They're working 60, 70 hours, but they can't access like health insurance because health insurance policies are way above any affordable zone. So were there certain, you know, policy issues or issues that you tackled while at Charles B. Wang and as like the chief medical officer there? At that time, certainly dealing very specifically on hepatitis B was a big thing. Mm -hmm. We certainly weren't lobbyists as a community provider. You're not allowed to lobby, but there are certain issues that policy-wise that you have to advocate for is hepatitis B is a huge problem in the Asian community, especially amongst the Chinese and Korean. For American-born Asians, it's not so much a problem because there's all this vaccination going on. Yeah. But, you know, the, the percentages from immigrants is at least it's one out of 10 people are infected with hepatitis B. 
and wow. it causes liver cancer. Right. The other big issue is also diabetes. Diabetes is, is increasing so much in the community. And then the third issue is mental health. Uh, you know, mental health is not really accepted at that time. It's still very stigmatized and you can't really say you're depressed or anxious. And when you translate it, you, you know, the translation is like you're a crazy person. And so all these issues, it's big enough when you don't have access, but then when you have these conditions, like, what do you do? So much of my time was really advocating for grants and grant funding so that we can actually provide clinical services to patients who lacked insurance. After working at Charles D. Wang and doing a whole bunch of really great things for the community, how did someone get in touch with you to ask for you to, to be a congressional staffer for the Obama administration? I would not have gotten those opportunities without mentors and without folks out there helping and, and seeing like there's something in me. So Ben Chu, who was running Health and Hospital Corporation under the Giuliani and Bloomberg administration, had called me up and said, you ought to apply for it. It's part of the Human Capital Portfolio Program where Robert Johnson Foundation will invest in mid-career individuals in healthcare who they think have an opportunity to become a healthcare leader. Hmm. And so they take seven to 10 individuals. It's very competitive. You apply, there's a long interview process, and then you get accepted. If they select you, you spend a year in DC in a congressional office or a committee. And that year, there were seven of us, and that was the year when McCain was running against Obama. And I got accepted into the program in June. I had to commit in September 2008, but we didn't, obviously, we, I didn't know who won, who would have won the election because the election was, announcement was November. So mm-hmm. I, I accepted the offer to go down without knowing who the administration was. And, and it was just... You know, the, the sequence of events was just like, it was all serendipity. Like Obama won January 1st. He had the stimulus pack. He was crafting a stimulus package. When I got down to D.C., you have to go through a second wave of interviews. And mm-hmm. I had to, I interviewed with the Senate Finance Committee, Senate Health Committee, the Ways and Means Committee, Nancy Pelosi's office, the Speaker's office, and some individual offices. And I had four offers from four <laughs> committees. And I ended up choosing Ways and Means because I just felt Ways and Means was truly the most powerful committee because it works on taxes and taxes pays for Medicare and Medicaid. So as you were working for the Obama administration, you had the chance to work on the Affordable Care Act. Like, what was your role in in writing it? And what were some of the things that were important in thinking through the Affordable Care Act? Yeah. So I just want to clarify with your listeners that. So my role initially was working as a congressional staffer on the Ways and Means Committee. And I was with a group of, let's just say, 
probably about 30 staffers who actually act, craft the policy and do the writing. And I was very fortunate to have worked on different aspects of the Affordable Care Act, like you know, what defines quality and, and what's the budget allocated for community health centers and the wave of the, like, the, there was this program where the Affordable Care Act came up with a budget allocation of $10 billion for new safety net providers. How do we define the different levels of insurance? What, you know, what's in a gold plan? What's in a silver plan? What's in a platinum plan? Right. Of benefit design. What, how do we evaluate hospitals and doctors in the program where we pay for value and outcomes and not pay for transactions. Mm-hmm. So th- those are some of the things as a congressional staffer where I would talk to experts and speak with experts and then formulate a policy that's really based on consensus and analyze what are unintended con- consequences. And, and so it was after the passage of the Affordable Care Act that was when I was offered a position in the administration. So I worked in the agency within HHS. It was called the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. It's a mouthful, but essentially in that role, I took the legislation. I helped the government take the legislation and then roll it out into rules and regulations. So how do you implement then that piece of legislation that was just passed? That continuity of conception of the legislation to implementing the legislation was such an eye-opener. And really, I, I mean, I cherish that experience so much. The current administration has had a lot of efforts to actually undo the work that you've done with the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. What are sort of your thoughts around that? in repealing the Affordable Care Act. I know that there's a lot of misconceptions, uh, especially amongst like our own Asian American community, where they think that the Affordable Care Act is going to take away their Medicaid or if they're undocumented, is going to affect their ability to stay in this country. Yeah, I, I worry about it also, especially in light of recent events. And if we have a Supreme Court who can basically dismantle the Affordable Care Act. And certainly there's a desire for that. You know, I I really, really wonder and worry about people with pre-existing conditions, how they're going to get affordable access to, to coverage. I wonder how we're ever going to reduce the number of uninsured who over time costs more to society than anything else because if they if people who are uninsured show up in the emergency room and and our safety net hospitals are taking care of these people eventually it's society that pays for you know very very expensive acute care versus then preventive care and we see the uninsured rate going up over the last four years because Medicaid is contracting and because some of the additional benefits and some of the additional, you know, coverage policies have been contracting and limited. 
So it's a very tenuous situation out there. Yeah, absolutely. For those who kind of don't quite understand the Affordable Care Act and like how that actually affects them, or like especially for the community of uh, Asian Americans here in New York who could really benefit from it. What sort of message would you communicate to them to help them understand it? My one two-liner is, you know, it's not socialized medicine. It's it's not taking away Medicare and Medicaid. In fact, it is expanding benefits and also trying to protect the consumer and the patient. For example, if you had um, high blood pressure, diabetes, and you lose your job and you want to get health insurance in the marketplace and you have the right to actually get access to health insurance, regardless of your pre-existing condition, regardless of whether you had diabetes or not. So that protection was not there before the Affordable Care Act. And also even giving funding to safety net providers and to clinics that don't reject patients if they can't pay. Like that sort of situation was not there before the Affordable Care Act. So I would say to to your listeners is like, unless you earn a million dollars a year, like the these things affect everyone, the middle class, the you know upper class and the lower class, I think, regardless of who you are and where you are in the social economic status, this is, these benefits are to, meant to protect you, the consumer and the average American. I want to talk a bit about the current situation, right? How have you seen or have you seen any changes with the way that you're practicing health or the way that people are coming to Valera for mental health concerns during COVID? It's, it's a huge impact. It's COVID's been really, really hitting folks who, even if they didn't have a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, it's hitting the general population in incredible, impactful way. It's, we, we've seen the numbers of folk calling the suicide hotlines like gone up a thousand fold. And we ourselves have seen our numbers grow month after month of people needing help. And so from July to August, we grew by 300%. Wow. In terms of number of visits. And yeah, it's, it's just unfortunate, but COVID's had a lot of impact and major impact on just causing anxiety and especially people who live alone. It's just been very, very hard during the quarantine, you know, incredible stress of incredible insomnia. Thomas, do you have thoughts around the current administration's reaction to COVID? The specific framework that I'm thinking in is as well as like the anti-Asian sentiment around it, where, you know, the president himself called it the Chinese flu. People are calling it the Kung flu. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I really, I really think that is just so inappropriate and just unfortunate that it's this entire epidemic has been politicized and that 
it's unfortunate that we don't have a, a central policy and that we've seen the CDC guidelines have, has been politicized and impacted. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very unfortunate situation. Yeah. From a, like a mental health perspective, how can people sort of deal or cope with, with the situation? I mean, I would say that people need to take time and, and practice self-care and just be very conscious about their, just how does one nurture yourself? And it means various, various different things and different things for different people. And how does a mom who's taking care of four kids at home when the kids are doing remote learning, how does, you know, and then work and cook and clean and do everything. And how does that mom um, take care of herself? And I think it's just uh, small acts of kindness to yourself. And we just have to like put it in the calendar or just make it a conscious effort to do that. Whether it's uh, as simple as just like tuning out for 30 minutes and, and, and just being in your bed watching Netflix or, <laughs> or having a, 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 you know, bowl of ice cream or just like really just be kind to yourself. Yeah. Speaking of being kind to ourselves, you yourself have had a very intimate relationship with, with mental health and going through your own mental health journey. Yeah, it's it's certainly something that I wasn't very open about at that time when I was uh, going through it. I kind of share with many of my friends my own journey and even with my own staff is like one of the driving passions of what keeps me pushing forward with Valera is to uh, destigmatize mental health conditions and also pushing for access of services. And part of that was my own experience when I came out to my parents during residency. And as you can imagine, Chinese parents without any education and, and right. how they would react. I was post-call for my residency. I was up like 36 hours and they wanted me to dim some. And you know, this, you know, this is probably around 19, let's say, 1992, 93, right? Yeah. And it was around right in the middle of the AIDS epidemic when people, when gay men were like dying uh, from AIDS and there was no really good treatment out there. And they kind of just like very casually said, oh, we want to fix you up with someone. And and she's a pharmacist. <laughs> Perfect match. And I kind of just blurted out at that time, hey, I'm actually dating someone, but it's a he and it's not a she, and he's a, he's a dentist. <laughs> and, and well, so, at least you stayed in the medical field. <laughs> yeah, and so... And that's when, like, my mom just, like, screamed out, you're an abomination, and it would have been better if you'd been a drug addict. And it turned into a one-year, almost uh, a breakup from my family because we didn't talk for almost one year. And wow. and that was right in the middle of my internship. I was taking care of AIDS patients. I was, I was dealing with internship and, and working those hours. And 
and becoming a doctor. And so there was a period where I was really, it was really, really talk. And, and I actually contemplated suicide and had a plan and everything. And so, and it was very hard for me to even think about accessing mental health services. It's like, you know, I, even a doctor and even an, even a, an internist, you know, in a hospital, I, I don't Which know, is crazy. I didn't know about. who to go, where to go, yeah. like, you know, so that was a, uh, a process, but eventually everything worked out and my parents reached out, my brothers and sisters reached out after this non-communication piece. And of course, every so often that they would call me up and I would hear my mom crying on the phone. I would just hang up on them. Mm. Um, but it was, it was a tough period, but I, you know, that was in the, that was in the nineties in the AIDS era. I don't want to paint them and make them out as if like they're these like non-communicative cold, you know, family that I came from. I do want to give them credit that it's, it's been a, it's been a long journey, but they, they, that my brothers and sisters now are, are very supportive. That's amazing. Tell me a bit more about what you do at Valeria. So we are a tech and digital enabled mental health company. We create our own software to meaning we have a platform and a patient application that allows for monitoring patients mental health status. Meaning if you have depression, we will ask you a lot of questions over a period of time on a regular basis to see how you're doing. We work with some of the top providers across New York. And we also, in that app, have the ability to allow you to connect to your therapist and your psychiatrist through a private encrypted chat and telehealth features and also able to access uh, a ton of content that we developed. Mental health access is so hard to come by because just finding the right provider for you, finding the right mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. person, yeah, it's always really difficult. And yeah. so it's, it's great that you're making mental health more accessible. So Thomas, this is lovely. I'd love to end our conversation with our signature question, which is, Thomas, how do you intend to rock the boat? <laughs> that's a, I think that's a great question. I mean, for me, it's making sure every American has affordable, accessible, great quality mental health services. And, and I think we are going to achieve that. So thank you. Love it. Love your mission. Love what you're doing. I strongly believe in that as well. So thank you. That was Dr. Thomas Sang, physician, former White House staffer, and founder of Valera Health. What's inspiring about Thomas's story is how his personal experiences shape his work today. He experienced growing up without proper health insurance, which propelled him to work on the Affordable Care Act, and his own experience with mental health prompted him to start Valera. 
Even though Thomas initially chose the career path of practicing medicine, his passions eventually led him into politics and entrepreneurship. So when you're thinking about your own career path, know that there will always be different opportunities and your path may be very different from what you initially set out to pursue. Thanks for tuning in to Rock the Boat. Thomas is our last guest for season five, but we will actually have an official wrap up next week when I speak with Lynn. Yes, Lynn will be coming back for a special update on what she's been up to and we'll catch up for a bit. She is actually inviting a special guest, her classmate, onto this next episode. So stay tuned. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating if you're listening on iTunes, and definitely tell your friends about it. You can follow us on Instagram at rocktheboatnyc and subscribe to our mailing list for inside news. Thanks to my associate producer, Rachel Chu, for editing and mixing this episode. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time.